Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Septic shock is associated with high rates of morbidity and mortality that requires prompt resuscitation to restore vital organ perfusion. In addition to fluid resuscitation, vasoactive agents are often required to maintain mean arterial pressures, with norepinephrine recommended as first-line agent over other vasopressors. With that being said, controversy exists regarding the ideal timing for initiation of adjunctive vasoactive agents that have alternative mechanisms of actions, such as vasopressin or angiotensin II. On today's podcast episode, Dr. Kyle Hess goes full court press on multimodal vasopressor timing and septic shock. Let's join in on the discussion. I want you to imagine that you're a pharmacist working in the ED or ICU and you have a patient in front of you with a known infection who is rapidly decompensating due to septic shock. You have already given adequate fluid resuscitation with close to three liters of fluid, and you've started your first-line vasopressor, norepinephrine, and have since rapidly titrated up to a rate of 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And this doesn't seem to even be touching the patient's hypotension. Knowing that for each minute the patient isn't adequately perfusing their tissues, you have an increased risk of them developing end organ damage or death, you start to quickly think through what other options are available to you. Do you just keep titrating up on the norepinephrine drip? Do you call down to central pharmacy and have them send up an alternative vasopressor? Or maybe you crack open the code card that's on your floor and pull out a premixed bag of dopamine, or maybe open an epinephrine vial and make an epi drip yourself. By the end of this presentation, I hope that you'll have a better understanding of what options are available to you. And more importantly, I hope that you'll have a better understanding of at what time point you might start thinking about implementing these other options into your practice. Specific objectives for today's presentation are for you to be able to describe the rationale for early use of vasopressors with multiple mechanisms of action in a patient with septic shock as well as review literature examining the early initiation of vasopressin and identifying patient characteristics associated with a positive response to angiotensin II. Before we start talking about specific vasopressors, we need to take a step back and talk about what is septic shock. Sepsis is a dysregulated host response to an infection resulting in excessive inflammation and systemic vasodilation. The systemic vasodilation can then lead to a distributive shock and arterial hypotension. This causes decreased perfusion pressure to tissues, resulting in reduced oxygen delivery and inadequate cellular respiration. Due to this inadequate cellular respiration, tissues will then switch over into anaerobic metabolism, which can be noted by increased lactate levels in these patients. And if this process goes on long enough, eventually we might see multiple organ failure and death. We have evidence to support that for each hour a patient has a mean arterial pressure below 65, they have an increased risk of developing acute kidney injury, myocardial injury, or death. Because of this, it's going to be crucial that we control this arterial hypotension as quickly as possible and restore perfusion pressure to vital organs. 
In patients who don't respond to fluid resuscitation alone, vasopressors are going to play a key role in this process. Many of us have heard about the study showing that for each hour delay in initiation of antibiotics in septic patients, there's an increase in mortality. But what many people don't know is this is also true for vasopressors as well. One study showed that the risk of death increases by about 5.3% for every hour delay in vasopressor initiation in septic shock patients with a systolic blood pressure below 90 or a mean arterial pressure below 65. This just underscores the crucial role that vasopressors are going to play in these patients. Our body has multiple endogenous mechanisms for maintaining blood pressure homeostasis. One pathway is a catecholamine pathway acting on beta receptors in the heart and alpha receptors in the vascular smooth muscle. We also have the vasopressin and angiotensin or renin angiotensin aldosterone system that also act on vascular smooth muscle. However, in our patients with septic shock, there can be a dysfunction in one or multiple of these pathways resulting in the body's inability to maintain blood pressure homeostasis on its own. In these patients, we may need to administer exogenous vasopressors. One pathway that we're probably most familiar with is the catecholamine pathway. This includes our first-line vasopressor norepinephrine, as well as epinephrine and phenylephrine. Norepi and phenyl act primarily on alpha-1 receptors in vascular smooth muscle to cause vasoconstriction and increase systemic vascular resistance. Epi, on the other hand, has a little bit more activity on beta-1 receptors in the heart, resulting in increased heart rate and force of contraction, as well as an increase in release of renin to affect blood pressure homeostasis through alternative pathways. We also know that norepi and epi have activity on other adrenergic receptors, including beta-2 receptors, to cause bronchodilation and some vasodilation in some tissues. And it makes sense why we often administer catecholamines in patients with septic shock. And that's because we know there can be a significant autonomic dysfunction in patients with sepsis. One study used spectral analysis of heart rate variability to determine relative contributions of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system in patients with septic shock. In patients with sepsis, you would expect an increase in sympathetic CNS outflow to compensate for hypotension and decreased perfusion. However, what this study found was an inverse correlation between the severity of sepsis and the degree of sympathetically mediated heart rate variability in these septic shock patients. What that means is in patients with more severe septic shock, you actually see a decrease in sympathetic activity, demonstrating clear dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system. Another study looked at alpha-1 receptor density in patients with intra-abdominal sepsis and found a similar finding where in patients with more severe septic shock, there is actually a significant decrease in the density of alpha-1 receptors. Both of these studies just served to show that there's clear dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system in these patients, and it makes sense to administer exogenous catecholamine vasopressors. However, it's important to keep in mind that catecholamine vasopressors are not benign drugs. Too much activity at alpha receptors can result in digital ischemia and necrosis, and also decreased splanchnic perfusion. And too much activity at beta receptors can increase the risk of arrhythmia significantly. With one study showing that for every five microgram per minute increase in rate of norepinephrine, there is a 6% increase in the risk of developing an arrhythmia. To underscore how small of an increase this actually is, in an 80 kilogram patient, that's only a 0.06 microgram per kilogram per minute increase in rate. 
And what's worse, when we get to really high rates of norepinephrine, like around one microgram per kilogram per minute or 100 micrograms per minute in non-weight-based dosing, we see excessive rates of mortality. On this slide, I have six studies that reported mortality in patients on high doses of norepinephrine, and rates range from greater than 60% all the way up to 94%. And we know that not all of our patients are gonna to respond to low doses of norepinephrine alone. With one study of septic shock patients showing that about a third of patients required two or more vasopressors. And as we already discussed, patients who don't respond to low doses of norepinephrine are gonna have excessive mortality rates. So what other options do we have available to us? Well, one vasopressor providers are starting to become a lot more comfortable with is vasopressin. Vasopressin acts on V1 receptors in vascular smooth muscle to cause vasoconstriction and increase systemic vascular resistance. It also has secondary effects at other receptors to increase water retention and increase the release of adrenocorticotropin hormone. And it makes a lot of sense to replete vasopressin in septic shock patients. In shock, we see systemic vasodilation, which results in a decrease in blood pressure. And initially, the body will respond by increasing the release of vasopressin from the posterior pituitary. Early on in shock, this might result in increased plasma concentrations of vasopressin. However, quickly over time, we see rapid depletion of endogenous vasopressin, resulting in a relative vasopressin deficiency. What's worse is this can be further exacerbated in septic shock patients. One study compared vasopressin levels in patients with various types of shock and found that levels were significantly lower in septic shock patients compared to cardiogenic shock patients. While it makes sense to replete vasopressin, again, we know that not every patient is gonna respond. With one study showing that 55% of patients given vasopressin failed to achieve MAP of 65 at six hours. And we know that non-responders have significantly higher mortality rates than those that respond, with this study showing about a 15% increase in mortality. So if about a third of our patients aren't gonna to respond to low doses of norepinephrine, and about half of our patients might not respond to vasopressin, what other options do we have available to us? Well, that's where our final pathway comes into play, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. In this pathway, angiotensin is converted to angiotensin-1 through the activity of renin, and then angiotensin-1 is converted to angiotensin-2 through the activity of angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE. Angiotensin II has activity at the AT1 receptor, resulting in vasoconstriction, an increase in sodium and water retention, and also an increase in the release of vasopressin and aldosterone. There's also an AT2 receptor, which angiotensin II has lesser activity at, which has the opposite effect of vasodilation, nitric oxide production, and increased sodium and water excretion. Similar to other pathways, we know there can be significant dysfunction in the RAS system during septic shock. Some patients might have a deficiency or dysfunction in angiotensin converting enzyme, leading to the inability for the body to convert angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. This leads to decreased ANG2 levels and decreased activity at the AT1 receptor and an inability to vasoconstrict. The body then responds by increasing production of renin, which in turn will result in increased levels of angiotensin 1. Since angiotensin 1 can't be converted to angiotensin 2, it will then be converted to byproducts through alternative pathways. These angiotensin 1 byproducts actually have activity at the AT2 receptor and have a vasodilatory effect, which would worsen hypotension in our septic shock patients. This ends up creating a vicious cycle 
where the body will then respond by increasing production of renin, which further increases ANG1 levels, further, pre further creating angiotensin 1 byproducts, and further worsening vasodilation. In these patients, it makes a lot of sense to correct this process by administering exogenous angiotensin II and restoring activity at the AT1 receptor. We have evidence to support that this dysfunction is associated with increased mortality in septic shock patients, with one study finding that non-survivors had significantly lower levels of angiotensin II and angiotensin converting enzyme convert compared to survivors. Also, renin might be a great predictor or a great prognostic predictor in patients with various types of septic shock or various types of shock, with one study showing that non-survivors had significantly higher renin levels than survivors. However, again, we know that not every patient will respond to angiotensin II, with one study showing that, again, about a third of patients failed to increase systolic blood pressure by 10 at three hours. And again, similar to the vasopressin study, non-responders had significantly higher mortality rates than responders with about a 35% increase. That will bring us to our first assessment question, which you can answer by going to pollev.com slash mailrx or texting your answer to 22333. The question is, which hemodynamic pathway is the best target for exogenous vasopressors in patients with septic shock? You can respond by tapping on the pathway that you think would be best to target. It looks like we're getting a variety of answers and that's what I was expecting. I guess a lot of people actually like the RASP pathway for this question. But the purpose of um, this was not to say that one pathway is better than another, but rather to highlight that we have three different pathways involved in blood pressure homeostasis. And during septic shock, any of these pathways can have dysfunction. We have an exogenous vasopressor that can target each of these different pathways that we can administer, but we know that not one single vasopressor has a 100% response rate, and non-responders have significantly increased mortality compared to responders. Because we don't know which vasopressor each individual patient in front of us will respond to, it makes a lot of sense to start thinking early about adding a vasopressor with an additional mechanism of action rather than just titrating up on the rate of one vasopressor that the patient isn't responding to. With that, we'll move into the next section of the presentation, evaluating literature for the early initiation of vasopressin. One of the earliest trials to lend support to early initiation of vasopressin was the VAST trial published in 2008. Many people get confused with this trial where they think it's comparing norepinephrine to vasopressin as a first-line vasopressor, when in reality, what it was actually comparing was escalating doses of norepinephrine to the adjunctive use of vasopressin. That's because to be included in this trial, patients had to be on at least five micrograms per minute of norepinephrine at baseline. And the average baseline rate that patients were on was 0.27 micrograms per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine, which is a fairly high rate. The primary outcome the study looked at was mortality at day 28 and 90. A notable exclusion criteria were patients with NYHA heart failure class three or four or ACS. So excluding patients who might have a cardiogenic component to their shock. Initially looking at the outcomes of this trial, you might be underwhelmed, where in the overall population, there is no significant difference between the two groups in mortality. However, where this gets a lot more interesting is when you look at the author's subgroup analysis of patients requiring higher or lower rates of norepinephrine at time of initiation of the trial drug. The author separated patients 
based on norepinephrine requirements of greater than 15 micrograms per minute or less than 15 micrograms per minute. In an 80 kilogram patient, this would be equal to a rate of about 0.18 to 0.19. What the authors found is in the subgroup of patients requiring less than 15 micrograms per minute of norepinephrine at time of initiation of the trial drug, vasopressin was associated with, or the vasopressin group had significantly lower mortality than the norepinephrine group with a number needed to treat of only 10 for 90-day mortality. Another positive finding of the VAST trial was a significant reduction in catecholamine requirements when vasopressin was added. This is important when you think back to earlier in the presentation where we talked about how even a five microgram per minute increase in norepinephrine dose increases the risk of developing arrhythmia by 6%. Since VAST, there have been multiple other trials comparing early initiation of vasopressin to escalating doses of norepinephrine, one of which was published by Heyman and colleagues in 2018. This was a prospective open-label trial uh, comparing initiation of vasopressin within four hours of starting norepinephrine to escalating doses of norepinephrine. The authors found that the vasopressin group had significantly faster time to achieving their MAP goal. So you might think that this improves time to restoring perfusion pressure to vital organs. Another trial that was uh, designed somewhat similarly to the VAST trial was VANISH, published in 2016. In this trial, the authors found that the addition of vasopressin compared to escalating doses of norepinephrine was a resulted in reduced need for renal replacement therapy with a number needed to treat of only 11. Further demonstrating that vasopressin may have a protective effect for end organ damage, especially when we look at the kidneys. All three of these trials we've talked about so far have compared patients who received vasopressin to patients who did not receive vasopressin. However, an interesting study published just this year by Gretchen Sacha and colleagues out of Cleveland Clinic looked at a cohort of patients who all received vasopressin and compared outcomes based on patients who received it earlier on in their course of therapy to later on in their course of therapy. They created a multivariate regression model for the effect of norepinephrine dose at time of vasopressin initiation, and they found that the odds of in-hospital mortality increased by 20.7% for just every 10 microgram per minute increase in norepinephrine at the time of vasopressin initiation. They created a similar model for the effect of lactate at time of initiation at vasopressin and found that the odds of in-hospital mortality increased by 14% for every one millimole per liter increase in lactate at the time of vasopressin initiation. All this data we talked about supports the fact that we should be, in patients who aren't initially responding to a low dose of norepinephrine, we should potentially be considering the addition of a vasopressor with a different mechanism of action rather than just titrating up on the rate. That will bring us to our second assessment question of the day, which is, what is your current threshold for recommending initiation of vasopressin for a patient with septic shock? Do you start to recommend it at a rate of 0 to 0 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine, a rate of 0.1 to 0.2, rate of 0.2 to 0.4, or a rate of greater than 0.4? So it looks like a majority of the audience is picking 0.1 to 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine for the point at which they start to recommend vasopressin. And this seems fairly consistent with conversations I've had with various ED and ICU pharmacists. However, often what I see in practice is that conversation gets a little delayed until closer to the 0.2 to 0.4 microgram per kilogram per minute range. 
And then one huge barrier to the early initiation of vasopressin is the fact that traditionally vasopressin has had to come down from central pharmacy. So by the time the drug actually gets to the patient, we're looking at closer to the 0.4 microgram per kilogram per minute range. One thing that's changing here on our Rochester campus is we're starting to supply premixed vials of vasopressin that soon we're going to start stocking in the ED and ICU Pixis machines, which will eliminate one of the huge barriers to the early initiation of vasopressin. However, the responsibility is going to fall on us as pharmacists to make sure that we're starting the conversation about starting vasopressin early in a patient's course of therapy, rather than waiting until later when it might be too late for it to have a great effect. Key takeaways about early initiation of vasopressin, remembering that in the subgroup analysis of VAS in, the, in patients receiving less than 15 micrograms per minute of norepinephrine, the vasopressin group had significantly lower mortality, showing that maybe we should be starting vasopressin at these lower rates of norepinephrine instead of waiting until we escalate to higher rates of norepinephrine and it might be too late. Early initiation of vasopressin was associated with faster time to achieving MAP goal. And in a study published just this year comparing patients receiving vasopressin at either higher or lower doses of norepinephrine, initiating at lower doses was associated with a significant reduction in odds of in-hospital mortality compared to later initiation. Next, we'll move into the final part of our presentation, evaluating literature, looking at the use of angiotensin II, specifically focusing on patient characteristics at baseline, which might be associated with a positive response to this drug. The landmark trial that got angiotensin II approved was ATHOS-3, published in 2017. This was a trial that included patients with high output vasodilatory shock, patients who were non-responsive to fluid resuscitation, and on at least 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine at baseline, with the average baseline rate being 0.34 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Patients were randomized to receive angiotensin II at an initial rate of 20 nanograms per kilogram per minute or placebo. The trial infusions were continued for 48 hours, at which time they were stopped. But if there was a rebound in hypotension or need for vasopressors, then the trial infusion could be resumed for up to seven days. This trial was powered to assess a MAP response at three hours, defined as achieving a MAP goal of 75 or an increase in MAP of at least 10. And the authors found that angiotensin II was, uh, did achieve this MAP goal at three hours at a greater rate than placebo, and also had significant improvements in cardiovascular SOFA score at two days, as well as significant reductions in norepinephrine dose at three hours. You can see that mortality at both day seven and 28 was numerically lower in the angiotensin II group. However, this was not a statistically significant difference as the trial was not powered to detect differences in mortality. There is also no significant difference in rates of any adverse event or any serious adverse event in the angiotensin II group. On this slide, I have illustrated the survival curves for the two groups. Again, you can see that survival appears to be numerically higher in the angiotensin II group, although this was not a statistically significant difference. And on this slide, you can see that angiotensin II reduced the need for catecholamine vasopressors. Again, this is important because we know for every five microgram per minute increase in norepinephrine dose, there's a 6% increase in rate, risk of developing an arrhythmia. One very interesting thing to pull out of the ATHOS-3 supplement is the author's multivariate analysis for factors associated with obtaining target MAP goal at three hours. One thing I'll highlight at the bottom of this table 
is the fact that patients who were on lower doses of norepinephrine, so less than 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute at time of initiation of the trial drug, were significantly more likely to have a positive hemodynamic response at three hours. Other interesting things to pull from this table are that patients who are receiving angiotensin receptor blockers at baseline were less likely to have a response, which makes sense if there's competition for that binding site. And patients with ARDS on chest x-ray at baseline were actually more likely to have a positive response to angiotensin II. This makes sense when you think about the pathophysiology of it, as angiotensin converting enzyme is bound to the pulmonary capillary endothelium. So if there's a if there's damage to this endothelium, then these patients might have a deficiency in angiotensin converting enzyme, which makes sense why would they would have a more positive response to angiotensin II. Since ATHOS 3, there have been a couple of postmarking studies looking at real-world use of angiotensin II. I'll note that both of these studies. Um, patients were on baseline rates of uh, norepinephrine much higher than 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, which shows currently we're really using angiotensin II as a last line salvage agent rather than starting it at a time similar to what was suggested in ATHOS 3 of about a, a rate of 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute. The first trial we'll talk about was published by a couple of our colleagues here at Mayo Clinic, Patrick Bershevsky and Aaron Barreto in 2021. This included about 270 patients receiving angiotensin II, and the authors created a multivariate regression model for the effect of baseline characteristics on hemodynamic response at three hours, which was defined as achieving a MAP goal of 65 uh, with stable vasopressor requirements. What the authors found is that patients with lower lactate at baseline or receiving vasopressin at baseline were more likely to have a positive hemodynamic response. They also created a model for 30-day all-cause mortality. As you might expect, patients who had a positive hemodynamic response were, were less likely to have mortality at day 30. But other interesting things to pull from this model is that lower lactate at time of initiation and lower vasopressor dose at time of initiation was also associated with reduced odds of 30-day mortality. Again, this is suggestive that potentially we should be considering vasopressors with alternative mechanisms of action early on in a patient's course of therapy, rather than waiting until later on when it might be too late. The second post-marketing study that we'll talk about was published by Smith and colleagues in 2022, and it included about 160 patients receiving angiotensin II. The authors found that angiotensin II administration was associated with significant MAP increases and significant reductions in norepinephrine at three hours. But what's more interesting is to look at their analysis of the effect of baseline vasopressor requirement on three-hour response to angiotensin II. The authors used cutoffs of both 0.2 and 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And regardless of the cutoff they used, lower requirements of baseline vasopressors was associated with a significantly greater response to angiotensin II and significantly greater reductions in norepinephrine dose requirements at three hours. So this just further lends support that we should be considering angiotensin II earlier on in a patient's course of therapy, rather than how we seem to be using it and waiting for to initiate it as last line salvage therapy. And that will bring us to our final assessment question of the day which is which of the following baseline characteristics is associated with a more favorable response to angiotensin II? Is it increased lactate at baseline? Is it higher norepinephrine dose requirements at baseline? Receive vasopressin at baseline or low renin levels at baseline? 
It looks like a majority of the audience is picking C, receipt of vasopressin at baseline, which is the correct answer. The 2021 study by Bershevsky and colleagues found that lower lactate, not increased lactate at baseline, and receipt of vasopressin at baseline was associated with an increased likelihood of having a positive hemodynamic response at three hours. Um, the studies by Smith and colleagues, as well as the Athos 3 supplement, showed that lower norepinephrine dose requirements at baseline were associated with either greater norepinephrine dose requirements at three hours or greater hemodynamic response at three hours compared to those that were on higher doses of norepinephrine. And finally, you would expect patients with high renin at baseline rather than low renin at baseline to have a more favorable response to angiotensin II. Key takeaways for the use of angiotensin II, remembering that angiotensin II can help decrease norepinephrine dose requirements and increase MAP at three hours. Understanding that lower lactate at baseline and receipt of vasopressin at baseline at time of initiation is associated with a more favorable hemodynamic response to angiotensin II. And finally, lower norepinephrine doses at time of initiation of angiotensin II is associated with greater reduction in vasopressin needs, as well as an increased likelihood of having a positive hemodynamic response at three hours. As we move into the end of the presentation, I want to emphasize that the point of this talk was not to say that one vasopressor is better than another, or that we have a magic bullet vasopressor that will help every patient in septic shock, but rather to highlight in the individual patient in front of us, we don't know what specific dysfunction they're having in which pathway and which vasopressor they might have a better response to. Because of this, we should be thinking about starting vasopressors with multiple mechanisms of action early on, rather than titrating up on the rate of a vasopressor that they don't seem to be responding to. Some, some potential future directions for vasopressors and septic shock that might help with us under improve our understanding is the use of biomarkers such as renin or plasma vasopressin concentrations to guide initial therapy for vasopressors, as well as the use of genetic polymorphisms of patients to understand which vasopressor they might have a better response to. Hopefully we will continue to have further randomized controlled trials, especially with our newer vasopressor angiotensin II to understand its specific place in therapy. And finally, in the future, we might change our approach to de-escalation of vasopressors from a first on, last off approach to leaving on a vasopressor that our patient is having the best response to. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.